this class is uh, this class always gets me fired up. I mean, I I love this area of the law, but uh, but doing this class always re-energizes me. It's like it's like going to New York every once in a while. You see all the lights on in all the buildings, and you think, man, somebody up there is plotting my demise. <laughs> I can't go back to Charlottesville and be inspired walking up and down the downtown mall and looking up and seeing no lights on in the buildings. I gotta go back. I gotta work harder. I gotta work more. I gotta be more efficient. Um, so anyway, every time we do this class, I get I get some uh, inspiration to go back and be like, okay, we gotta do this one better and and, and faster. Um, so we're we're gonna get to the part of the class now where we talk about sort of entrepreneurs. I think it's important for you to have some understanding of who entrepreneurs are, what makes up uh, an entrepreneur, some of the, the mindset of an entrepreneur, some of the characteristics of an entrepreneur. Um, I think over the course of the class, you will learn how the lawyer fits in and all, yeah, do you have a question? Oh, no. And all of the um, uh, classes you've taken up to now and classes you will take throughout law school We'll show you how lawyers fit into the equation uh, along the spectrum of, uh, of risk and, and importance. Uh, but, but very little in law school do we actually understand about entrepreneurs, who they are, what they do, why they do what they do. And I think if you're going to do this area of law, you absolutely need to understand that. So uh, one of the things I found uh, a couple of, of years ago searching on the web was uh, an entrepreneur uh, article from Entrepreneur Magazine talking about some of the characteristics of entrepreneurs. And I thought that I would go around and ask you guys to just throw out, like when you think about an entrepreneur, when you think about a startup founder, what characteristics do you think that they have that um, would make them successful? Maybe just go. go. Creative. Creative. Good. Risk. Risk. Uh, yep. Perfect. Self-motivated. Excellent. Anybody else have one? Yeah, very good, exactly, especially early on. Very much so. Uh, and these are just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you have to build consensus of, of, uh, among a bunch of different constituents. Right? Absolutely, investors, employees, customers, uh, and, and charisma is huge for that. So you can see here, this is not exhaustive, this is just top 25. Uh, characteristics uh, that they have on there. And we'll talk about some of these, and, and we'll put this up, uh, this slide presentation up later so you can take a look at it. We'll put some of these up. Uh, some of them I very much agree with. Others, as we go through the class, you may think to yourself, wow, that's not what I thought. So uh, the biggest of which is there's this perception that entrepreneurs are very risk, very much risk takers. Right? Lawyers are risk averse, entrepreneurs are risk takers. And actually, as you will see throughout this class, especially later on in this presentation, you'll see that that's not really the case. Most entrepreneurs that I know aren't really risk takers at all. They've actually analyzed risk across the entire spectrum and decided whether or not venturing into a business is the right move for them at a given time in their life. Uh, and they don't just drop everything and be like, okay, I'm going all in with, uh, with this. Uh, without having analyzed the risk. They've actually analyzed risk and found that they're, what they're going to do, what they could bring to the table can be very successful. And that's the reason they're going into it, not because they're, they're actual risk takers. Um, so we'll talk about that, uh, about that uh, here momentarily. Uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, Professor Sarah Sarasvati? You, 
Very good. Anybody else? Anybody know who this woman is? This woman is a professor at Darden, right? And she's amazing. She's a good friend of mine. I love her. I love her research. I love her work. I love her classes. Uh, so she came up with this theory a few years ago called the principles of effectuation. And there's five theories on what makes entrepreneurs successful. And so she did all this research, interviewed all these entrepreneurs, some very successful, some not so successful, and uh, created this, these five categories that, you know, when I was starting my businesses and, and, and as I was advising people, some of them are pretty intuitive, like you, you, you didn't have a name for them, you just did them. But she actually came up with a name for them, and I thought it would be very valuable for you all to at least be exposed to them so you understand what they are. And if you want more information, there's actually conferences now that are held uh, on this topic. And it's, if you want, just go to effectuation.org, and you will see some PDFs, when the next conference is, some scholarship research that's been done uh, on this. So her theory is that successful entrepreneurs have these five characteristics in common. Right, the first one is what's called affordable loss. Right, it's a little bit what we were talking about earlier. So affordable loss is how much can you afford to lose at any given time when you're setting up a company. That's what you set aside in order to, to create the idea in order to set up the company. So uh, you, you will find that in the spectrum of company creation, many young people often start companies. And a lot less older people start companies. Why? The answer? Yeah, so there's, there's three sort of intangible things or maybe tangible that are required to start a company. Time, money, and energy. When you're young, you're 22, 24 years old, you have a lot of time, you have a lot of energy, you don't have a lot of money. Right? You can work 16-hour days, 22-hour days, right? sleep for three hours. You can go all in. All $6,000 that you've saved up in your undergrad from your, from your part-time job, you go all in into the company. If it doesn't work out in two, three years, you're still 27, 28, 29. You can re-enter the workforce. You still have your whole life to still make money. Not a big deal. If you're 50, you can't invest 16 hours into a business. You have kids, you have family, you have obligations. And you're crazy to go all in. Right? If you've built up all your asset base over the past 20 years and you go all in and it doesn't work out, and now you're 57 and you have to start from scratch? That's a very difficult predicament to be in. So you always, you have to figure out what can I afford to lose? And then you fill the gaps with things and people around you to help offset that loss, right? So maybe if you're older in life, you're like, I don't have the energy to do this. I have money, I don't have the energy. So maybe you bring on a co-founder who's younger who can put in time right, to help you offset, to have offset the risk. Maybe you bring in six investors very early on in the company's uh, life later on to help offset the financial risk. Whatever it is, you assess the risk, you figure out what you can afford to lose, and that's all that you put in play. That's it. 10% of your net worth, 20, whatever it is, that's what you put, that's what you put in. 
That's what makes successful entrepreneurs. Number two is what's called bird in the hand principle. Meaning you start from a position of power. You start from a position of knowledge. Right? If you are a waiter at Bella's restaurant on Main Street, and you go to a group of investors and you say, I have a great idea for a new technology. It's a cloud-based database management system that I just came up with while I was serving my tables. The investor is going to ask, oh, what experience do you have with cloud-based systems or with database management? None. I just think this would be a good idea. Are the investors going to take you seriously? Whereas if you come out of MicroStrategy or Oracle or Microsoft and you say, I've been working there for seven years and I have a way better way to do things. It's this new cloud-based database management. I've been working on it for the past seven years. At this company, I have all this experience, and now I want to do a startup. Those are the entrepreneurs that are going to be more successful and taken more seriously, right? They're starting from a position of power. Lemonade principle, right? It's that old adage where if life deals you lemons, rather than cry about it, add some sugar, add some water, make lemonade, right? So the story that I like to tell here is a story about the baby carrots. Some of you may have heard it. Maybe not. How many of you think, like I did, that baby carrots that you buy in the grocery store are actually just carrots that the farmers took out before they matured? Baby carrots, right? There's baby kale, there's baby cows, there's maybe all kinds of stuff. Why is there not baby carrots? Did anybody think that? Everybody thinks that baby carrots are not baby carrots? Wow, this class is amazing. <laughs> or you guys just aren't willing to admit it. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, how many of you know the story of how baby carrots actually came to be? Like why we have baby carrots now? Does anybody know the story? Okay, good. I'm taking the wind out of the sail. Um, so uh, uh, in the 1920s, I can't remember, 1930s, 1940s, somewhere around there, uh, there was a farmer in Iowa. And his whole crop was carrots. That summer, Tremendous amount of tornadoes and windstorms and caused his dirt to shift. So when his crops grew, he went to pull his carrots out of the ground, and they all grew lopsided, right? L-shapes and some curly Qs, and it's all these different kinds of carrots. And he's like, carrots are carrots. They all taste the same. It's no big deal. So he takes them out, puts them in his little cart, takes them to the farmer's market, and tries to sell them. What do you think the consumers did when they saw odd-shaped carrots? Said, no way. We're going to the other guy who has regular-shaped carrots, carrots that you stick in the snowman's nose that look normal. Those are the carrots that we know. We don't buy these carrots. And so farmer didn't sell any of the carrots. Went back home. Him and his wife were sitting around thinking, what the heck are we going to do? And rather than just give up, right, throw things away, go into bankruptcy, they just said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we cut up our odd-shaped carrots into small carrots? We'll put baby carrots on the bags and sell them as cut-up carrots and baggies rather than these odd-shaped carrots. Three days later, after they've cut up all their carrots, they go with a new type of carrot, a new type of product, baby carrots. Crowd goes crazy. Sell out. Right? To this day, to this day, the baby carrots that you buy in the grocery store 
are almost always carrots that are oddly shaped or carrots that are too old, right? Because carrots that have gotten too big taste weird, so they don't, they don't, they can't sell them. So they will cut up the big carrots that are that are that overgrew or the carrots that are oddly shaped, and that's what your baby carrots are to this day. So it's a it's a point about lemonade, right? It's a point about taking the, the contingencies that life deals you and using them to your advantage. That's oftentimes how successful entrepreneurs, right? Because you always hear about, oh, this company pivoted, right? Snapchat pivoted, and Instagram pivoted from what they were into something else. That's, that's part of a lemonade contingency, right? That's part of a lemonade principle. We can, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Crazy quilt principle, right? The most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who have taken the time to develop relationships over the course of their life and assembled these relationships in a way that allows their business to be successful, right? So if you think about from an entrepreneur's perspective, who are the most important people for them to get their company off the ground, right? Maybe some programmers. Do you know some programmers who have been willing to offer some, some advice for free, some guidance for free? Maybe lawyers, like all of you, startup lawyers. Can, do I have a friend who's willing to sit with me over lunch? I'll buy them lunch. They'll tell me all I need to know about entity formation and licensing agreements and things like that. Maybe an accountant. Maybe a friend who's a VP at LinkedIn or Facebook or Google or someone who could buy my company. Shouldn't I talk to them or get to know them? So it's very similar to like, you know, you've seen those T-shirt quilts that they sell at, at uh, craft shows for like $400 or they'll make you one for like $500. Individually, each t-shirt that you own isn't worth much. But if you take those t-shirts and you assemble them into a nice pattern, right? Here's the entire Big Ten school, all t-shirts, or ACC. People will buy that. People will spend 600, 700. It's worth something, right? So it's this crazy quilt principle, how an individual relationship may not seem like it's worth much, but when you aggregate that relationship with a whole bunch of other relationships, it really could elevate this company to a new level. That's the point behind that. And the final piece is called pilot in the plane, right? It's, uh, you know, when, when, when pilots are flying, there are certain things within their control, the instruments, and based on their experiences, they can take what they can control and predict the future. They can predict what will likely happen based on what's within their control. That's what makes successful entrepreneurs. Successful entrepreneurs don't just go into a business and say, I hope that people are going to buy this product, or that people are going to use this service, right? It's why many entrepreneurs aren't gamblers. It's the whole thing about risk, right? Because they don't know what the next card is going to be. They can't predict that. It's, it's not, it's, you're not gambling. You're taking information. That you, that's why a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs actually prefer sports betting, keeping it a gambling thing, right? Because they at least know something about Indiana. They know something about Virginia. They know something about the teams. And they're like, okay, based on their past play on the road, the likelihood that they will cover the spread or not cover the spread is 70%. So I'm willing to take that chance uh, as opposed to just going and playing blackjack. Are there any questions? There's a lot more uh, details and a lot more information on effectuation.org on this. But it's, it's fascinating. And she always uh, has new examples of each of each uh, principle, and it's one that I think you guys uh, should really uh, um, uh, take some time to, to learn more about if, you, uh, if you're interested. Um, another big thing that an entrepreneur needs to do 
is assess risk. Right? This is why they hire attorneys early on in, an, in, a, in a company's life. It's to help them limit risk. This is why you all will be hired. Right? The last thing you want is an entrepreneur to come to you four years after they've started their business and say, can you help me undo what I've done over the past four years? The greatest thing that could have happened to you is the entrepreneur comes to you the day before they launch the business and say, I want to launch this business. Can you give me some guidance and some advice on what I should do? Right? So here are things that an entrepreneur thinks about when they're starting the company, and here are things that I think you all should know about and be able to talk about to an entrepreneur in order to help them assess, control, and limit their risk. The first one is personal risk. Right? When I started Cardigan, I was starting Cardigan really on my reputation. Right? Because I'm not a programmer. I don't have the knowledge that, that Quinn has from his time at, uh, at Microsoft or, or other people have. But yet I was starting a technology company. What's going to cause people to invest in my idea? It's me. Who I am, my reputation. But with that comes a certain responsibility to all of the investors. Right? Because the first round of Cardigan was, in fact, friends and family. And I have some brother-in-law friends uh, who invested um, who, to this day, still make Thanksgiving lunch awkward. What's going, what's going to happen with Cardi? Are you guys ever going to sell? What happened to that term sheet? Right? So you have this personal reputation that, that, that people, and then you have just your own personal liability. Right? When you're starting a company, I mean, we'll talk about this in a little while, um, you need to abide by various corporate formalities. You need to create a right entity to put the company into, whether it's a C Corp or an LLC or an S Corp or just some different, different uh, formality in order to protect yourself and your assets from liability. Right? Uh, people risk. This is a very big one that a lot of people don't understand because early on in a company's life, who are the people most likely to stick by you? They're your friends. They're the people who care about you. Right? Your idea could be crazy, but because you're their friend, they'll be like, that's a good idea. I got your back on that. And then you think, to yourself, well, why don't you come be my VP of marketing? I don't, I don't know much about marketing, but I'll help you. Because early on in a company's life, right, you can't go to battle with the army that you want. You've got to go to battle with the army that you have. And the army that you have are the people around you who are going to say, we'll help you. I learned how to do marketing. I learned how to be a CFO. I learned how because you can't afford to pay people. So who's willing to volunteer to help you? As the company matures up a life cycle, those are the people that you're oftentimes going to be asked to relieve their duties. Right? Because a, an investor is going to come in and be like, wow, what does James know about marketing? Well, he's been working with me for four months. Well, what does he know about internet marketing? I don't know. He, he just said he'd help me early on. Well, we need to get a professional in, so you've got to let him go. And that's a very awkward conversation to go to your friend who was there with you from day one and say, listen, man, I'm sorry. I've got to let you go. There's a lot of, lot of issues happen there, right? Because oftentimes you've made him a co-founder. You're my co-founder. Here's 10% of the company. I need that 10% back. Right? You guys have seen the social network, the Facebook movie, probably, and you've seen how, how, these, uh, how this dynamic uh, occurs and, and happens. 
Uh, then there's the, the technology risk, right? Because if you're creating a technology company, is there a market need? Is there a market demand? Are people going to use the technology? But the biggest thing that people have, especially when they're creating a technology company, is they are determined to release a Cadillac when all they really need is a scooter. Right? It's the whole principle behind what's called an MVP. Not a most valuable player, but, but Quinn mentioned it earlier. Minimum viable product. Right? When you're a technology company, you've got to create something, anything. Ship it. Right? Because shipping beats perfection. Ship it. Let the market tell you what it wants. Don't think that you know what the market needs. Let the market tell you. We like this button here. We don't like this color. We don't understand how this works or how that works. What do you mean? It's so intuitive. We don't get it. Let them tell you. Do the MVP. Then you have the scale-up risk. Right? This is where Cardian got in trouble. We're going to talk about this in a little while. Right? Scale-up risk because you get the company off the ground, you get the MVP out, you get people to like it. Now you've got to grow. Now you've got to get that hockey stick. Right? That's what everybody wants. And so how do you scale up in an affordable and efficient way? Right? When we were starting Cardigan, the scale up was done the exact same way that Groupon and Living Social and some of these other daily deal services, if you remember them from the time, was done, which is feet on the street. You hire a huge sales team. We only raised $5 million. How are we going to hire 3,000 people? But that's what the investors wanted us to do. So we'll talk about that in a little while and it caused a problem. And then the process risk. Right? All elements of the process. Right? And I, I oftentimes tell the uh, story of one of my first days at Cooley. Uh, the attorneys in the San Francisco office told us about this company that they were working with, the startup, that had just done an IPO. And one of the things they spent their money on was hiring a hypnotist. The hypnotist comes on staff and he would hypnotize the staff and the whole premise was, you don't need just a massage. You don't need a ping pong table or a Galaga game. You need a hypnotist because a hypnotist will allow you to forget all your problems at work. You can go home, enjoy your life with your family, and come back and you've forgotten all about it. And so apparently the hypnotist, who's a licensed doctor, was asking questions. And while the person was relaxed, the hypnotist was trading the stock of the company based on the data that he was receiving from the information. Right? And, and whole bunch of trades. And usually if it's under 10,000, the SEC doesn't flag. But if it goes above 10,000, the SEC will flag it and go back and look at the person's trading history. And so this is what happened. He, this person made like 300-some thousand dollars on one trade. They went back and looked, and there, he had made like 25 other trades all right before some announcement happened. Right? An acquisition, the earnings, whatever. And it was, so they contacted the company and said, who is this dude? Well, he's our hypnotist. <laughs> hypnotist. And they're like, oh, so come to find out, the FBI wanted information about what he was writing, like what was the meetings were about. So the FBI got the various information and warrants and went into his office. Right? Immediately, he didn't say anything. He just said, doctor, patient privilege. Doctor, patient privilege. You cannot have any of my records. Who owns the privilege, the doctor or the patient? Patient, what do you think Cooley had done prior to 
the FBI going in. We got a waiver from every single person that that person had met. So I held up the waiver. The guy didn't even have time to shred the file. We were able to, they were able to get the files, look at everything, and the person, I think, he's, I haven't checked recently, but I think they're still behind bars for, uh, for uh, insider trading information. But clearly, that's someone who didn't understand the process. He didn't understand the risk of the process, right? Understand. So it's something to, uh, to keep in mind. I love this quote because you think about companies, right? And when you think about companies, it is absolutely 100% all about execution. Execution. There are so many ideas that people have great ideas, dumb ideas. How many of you know who Howard Schultz is? Anybody heard of Howard Schultz? Howard Schultz, right? The founder of Starbucks. Howard Schultz. All he, he had a coffee shop. And he turned that coffee shop into a trillion dollar empire. Maybe not a trillion dollar, but billions of dollars. Why did Howard Schultz be successful in turning Starbucks and Shenandoah Joe's not? Or Calvino Cafe? Why? Why are any of the coffee shops in your hometown not the Starbucks? It's all about execution. And you can go down the line with all the ideas that people have, right? All the ideas. Some great, some not so great, but it's all about execution in order to be successful. So here's some basics, right? Some basic things on how to execute the strategy. And, and we're not going to go into detail now because I don't want to run out of time to talk about class, uh, to talk about the other stuff that we want to talk about. But one of the things that we're probably going to do is this business model canvas that I encourage companies and startups to engage in, right? It's an exercise where you take nine elements that are important to a business plan and you create a business model out of them that you then can look to and be like, okay, yeah, this, this is going to work. A will get us to B, will get us to C, will get us to D, will get us to E. If, if this happens at E, we'll be able to go to F and on down the line and then you realize you have a, you have a, a viable business. Then you can go and actually create a pitch deck. You can create an executive summary. You can create a business plan because you've vetted it out through the business model canvas. And we'll talk a little bit about that with Cardigan, but these are just some things to, uh, to, uh, uh, to think about. There's usually six, stage, six stages for a company, right? Stage one, the formation. I have an idea, right? The whole cocktail napkin. I have an idea, and this is where you assemble the Jameses in your life. Sorry to keep picking on you, right? This is where you assemble the people who believe in you, who aren't going to tell you no, right? Because the easiest word in the English language when you're starting a business is, no, that's never going to work. That doesn't make any sense. That's not going to work, right? Because we're doubters by nature. That's how it's human nature. Very few people are going to be like, oh, man, whatever you say, I'm all in, right? So formation, this is where you assemble the people who believe in you and uh, uh, you have your network. Maybe you have some friends, maybe you have some family who are going to help you out and get this business off the ground. Uh, at this stage, you also need to start thinking about protecting yourself. Right? I've got to reduce risk. One of the things you do is you create a company. You create an entity. Right? So you choose an entity for yourself to, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for that circumstance. 
Uh, second piece is the incubation phase. Right? This is, again, friends and family, but really angel investing. You've now done enough research. You've done macro research. You've done micro research. You have created a business model canvas. You have a plan. And you're going out and, and, and convincing people. Like I have, I have Usually, in the formation stage, you also have created some sort of product. Right? When I was starting Cardigan, it was so early in mobile development. And there were several different, like no one was sure if RIM, right, BlackBerry, was going to be the, the answer. Android was just starting. iOS was just starting. Microsoft Mobile was going right. And who knew? Nobody knew what Microsoft, because they had so much money, whether that was going to be the one. So you pretty much had to create a product for four platforms. And then there were some smartphones that were coming out that you just had to have a mobile website for. So you really had to have five distinct products when you were starting a company. Right now, that does, that's not the case. Now you can pretty much go in, you can download an SDK, software development kit, and really develop an iOS app or an Android app as your first version and be able to show it to your investors without, without too much drama, maybe $25,000. But back then, you know, you're talking 100000 in order to start a company because um, you weren't sure. So you have the formation, you have the incubation, then the next stage you have the MVP development, right? We're going to develop the minimum viable product, we're going to release it to the marketplace, and we're going to, we're going to do this. This is where you do your Series A round. You're like real investors are now interested in, in your company, Series A, beyond, beyond the angels, uh, although later stage angels will be as well. Then you have your market entry, um, your... Uh, doing a Series B round, typically at this stage, right? Because you're really expanding, you're scaling the business. You're trying to penetrate a whole bunch of different markets, not just the one that you're in, and not just geographically, you're growing. Uh, then you have the true growth stage, where you do a Series B round. At this point, you're no longer a, uh, uh, a research and development shop. Right now, you're a real company, you're a real business, you're... and then you hope that you get to liquidity, right? Liquidity is very rarely an IPO for a handful of companies, most likely an M&A transaction. You're going to be acquired. You'll be purchased. And so usually if you make it this far to liquidity, the likelihood of you getting acquired is much greater um, because you have you know, huge metrics of, of whatever it is that's important for you. Right? So for some people, metrics are dollars. For other people, metrics are like eyeballs. Right? So, for example, a company like Foursquare or Groupon, Twitter, Facebook back in the day, right? Facebook didn't make money. They didn't have the advertising channel they had now. They kept telling you, we just passed a billion users of Facebook. We just passed two billion users of Facebook. We just passed three billion. And that was their metric. How many people did they have signing up for their service? Right? They never told us how many actually used it at the time. All we knew is that these people created accounts. And you know, I think I created three or four Facebook accounts, but they counted all into the thing. I'm sure each of you probably created some different versions of, uh, of Facebook accounts, but whatever your metric is uh, gets to be uh, at that, that, that point. Um, so here's an interesting graphic that I thought would help you uh, sort of understand, um, especially this one down here, where investment happens in startup companies. Can you see this a little bit? Right. 
So you can see the, uh, in both cases, the speculative stage, the valley of death, happens very early on in a company's life, right? usually with the seed capital. That's why you have your angels, and that's why they call this FFF, friends, family, and fools. Right? That's who invests in companies at this early stage. And so you hope the company comes here because here the likelihood of it being successful is much greater. And that's why VCs, right, because people say, oh, it's venture capital. It's not really venture. There's nothing venture about it. Right? The venture happens here. This is when people are taking the chance, taking the risk. By the time you get here, when, when VCs are participating, the risk has been taken out of the equation. Right? So friends and family, angels are really taking all the risk. These people are willing to give up some of the risk, give up some of the, the, the for, for the uh, for, uh, uh, view into the company's life, and then it goes on down, up, up the line. Right? So this is usually when the companies die in these, in these periods of time. Any questions about this? All right. So this is actually a brand new uh, fun thing that I hope you all will enjoy. And if you don't, don't blame me. All right, so what I thought we could do here is, what's that? This will go fast. Okay. Very quickly. We're going to play a quick game. All right, very fast. We have, we have a lot of time. Um, multiple choice. No, no exams. Lord, I have to answer. Demo day. Does anybody know what the word, like this is called language of startups. Does anybody know what demo day is? Which one of these do you think it is? You can just blurt it out. A, B, or C? B. Correct. So demo day, incubator, like everybody know what an incubator is? It's like Y Combinator, Techstars. They invite early stage businesses, they invite startups into their company, into their, uh, their incubator. They usually give them 90 days. They try to train them on all the ways to be, and then they invite investors to come in for demo day. And all 20 companies or 10 companies or how many ever companies are in the uh, uh, incubator will give their presentation. And the hope for both the companies, but really for the incubator, is that the investors are going to fund it. Because incubators measure their success on how many of their companies get funded. That's why they say, oh, well, Facebook is an, is an alumni of, Twitter is an alum of, right? And so people are very proud on the fact, take great pride on the fact of which companies get funded. Space. You've heard this before. Oh, they're in the blank space. They're in the food retail space, consumer technology space. Right, what space? B, industry sector, exactly right. What's this? PEPCAC. Anybody know what that is? No? It's an acronym. Problems emerge between chair and keyboard. It's programmers believe that if people, if something doesn't work, it's user error. I developed this, I coded this, I don't understand why you can't use this game or you can't use this product. Right? They use this all the time. Uh, PEPCAC. Customer Success Associate. Right? So one of the things that 
startups pride themselves on is luring college graduates to work for them. Right? But no graduate from Harvard or Stanford or UVA is going to be a customer service rep at any company. They don't want that title on their, on their resume. So startups are known for taking existing jobs, branding them in a different way, so they'll attract the millennials, attract the younger generation. Customer success associate is literally a customer service rep. DevOps. Some, some of you are in startups, you should know this, exactly. It's a software engineer that crosses over between your software development team and your operations. Whether it's sales or marketing, whomever, they need to be able to talk the language of both. Ideally, so the product on day one can be sold with, this, with the marketing and sales strategy behind it. How about a programmer? Right? There's two types of computer software engineers. I don't know if any of you besides Quinn are a software engineer. Right? Usually they're nerdy. Right? You think, oh man, software engineer spends all their time behind the computer nerdy. Or they're loud and brash and act like a prep, a programmer. These are the people who get companies in trouble because they're oftentimes sexist. Right? So you see a lot of, a lot of uh, 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 lawsuits. It's almost, almost always because some programmer was involved. Bufferfish. This is, this is Cardian in many ways, right? Everybody knows what a pufferfish really is in real life. So like the stories are awesome about what companies do to appear bigger than they really are. Right. I know entrepreneurs who take out big space, rent desks, actually decorate the desks as if people were there and they just happen to be on lunch break when the investors come in. Right. Look at all these desks. Wow, look at these people that are all working here. Um, or take a voicemail system and like to dial by name, right, thank you for calling so-and-so, to dial by name, type the person's first three initials. And there's only four people that work there. You're like, wow, gosh. They're dialed by name. They must have a huge company. For Cardigan, we did the same thing, right? Because we started Cardigan in a garage, in an apartment above a garage in, in the back of my property. And so in order to get to the garage, you go up a driveway. My house is here on the left, and the garage with the apartment is on the right. And I asked my mailman if I can call this road Cardigan Way. And my mailman was cool. He said, look, as long as you put the words Robinson Woods, you can do whatever you want. And so on our website, you will, it'll say Cardigan Networks, for a long time it said one Cardigan way, and then in parentheses, at Robinson Woods, Charlottesville, Virginia. And so when I went to Chicago, people were like, wow, you have a road named after you? How big are you guys? We have a road named after us. Pufferfish. <laughs> Subprime unicorn. Know that, people know this? Like everybody knows what a unicorn is, right? A startup that's valued at over a billion dollars is a unicorn, right? Uber is a, is a unicorn. There's a whole bunch of companies there. There's Pinterest. Um, and then there's a lot of companies who were valued at a billion dollars who now aren't. And there's a lot of investors who invested in the company when it was over a billion dollars whose value in that company is now much less. All of it is on paper, but you know, imagine you invested at 1.2 billion and now the company is half 600 million it's a very disturbing, uh, disturbing time. Slack? How many of you have used, used Slack? Right? 
messaging app. It's a team messaging app. A lot of developers use it. Pretty cool product. It's like I am in many ways. Like I slacked you. Did you get my did you get my message? I slacked you. And not only I am you, I also slacked you. Um, Co-working. Exactly right. right. That's pretty easy. Um, and there's a lot of companies that offer shared space. It's just a way to keep costs down. Right? So you co-work, you share space with a whole bunch of companies. Accelerator, we sort of talked about this at the beginning, what an accelerator is. The iLab is an accelerator. Everybody know what the iLab is? It's right next door. iLab that Darden runs, they select 25 companies from the Charlottesville and UVA community. They put them in this accelerator. The entrepreneurial law clinic that Megan and Lauren are going to help me out uh, with this, uh, this spring are assigned, the assigned attorneys. They're, we're the legal help that, they, we, that offer the, this particular accelerator. But uh, uh, it's a very cool program and uh, one that a lot of law students don't know enough about and don't take enough advantage of. So, for example, tomorrow morning is an event at the iLab in the morning called Espresso and Entrepreneurs. It's right before this class. I'll be there. Free networking event. You get access to the space. You get to see what it's all about. You guys should, if you have time, go over. Grab a cup of coffee. Sit in for a few minutes. Meet some people. I think that's where I met you last year at that time, Sam. MVP we already know about. Right? Freemium. This is my favorite. Every company, most every company starts like this. Right? Revenue model. Exactly. Almost always with games. Right? We'll let you play level one, but if you want to go to level two, you've got to pay. Or you've got to buy some coins. Or you've got to buy a new avatar. Or you gotta, it's just a way of getting people hooked into, into a product or into a, a service and then taking them to a, a, a paying, getting them to be a paid, paid subscriber. Uh, it's called freemium. You'll hear people talk about that all the time. Oh, well, we're a freemium version. Get people, it doesn't cost anything to download the app. Just if you want to go to level two to nine, you got to pay us nine dollars per level, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Hockey stick. We talked about this a little while ago, right? You'll see investors talk about this all the time, right? Show us the hockey stick. When's it going to happen? Right? We know you're going to be like this, but when are you going to go like that? Show us. Next level. You're taking it to the next level. It's very, very. It's like rad. Or, I mean, you probably don't use RAD. What else was popular in the 80s and 90s? Fab, fabulous, RAD, out, out, awesome, right? Taking it, this is awesome. We're taking it to the next level. That's what you'll hear startups uh, say oftentimes. Blue skying, right? There's, there's uh, two color things that we're going to talk about. Blue sky, which is also a securities law term, right? State, state, state securities, when you sell state securities. But in the, in the venture capital aspect, it's you make these unbelievable promises to the investors during your investor presentation, right? So you'll see investors saying, oh, man, they're, they're really blue-skying us, right? Or you'll see the entrepreneurs say, well, we blue-skied them. I don't know if we're going to be able to really meet those goals. Green Meadow. You misrepresent yourself, knowingly misrepresent your expectations. In, in securities context, yes, but then when you're, it's almost like a, uh, puffery. Did you ever study that in advertising? That's, that's more what it is. Green meadow, right? Or green pasture. You'll see, you'll see this. Right? Yeah. 
right? And usually when you say, oh, it's a green meadow in this space, the investors will either say, wow, this person is brilliant, or this person is absolutely stupid. How could there be no competitors? If there's no competitors, why are you in the space? Right? Well, how, how could that be? Right? So I always caution young entrepreneurs, don't go into any place and say, there's nobody else doing this. Well, there's nobody else doing this, and there's no money to be made. There's, 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 there's a, so be very careful with doing that. Growth hacker, we're almost done with this, right? So you sometimes give awards within your company to the person who's helping the company take it to the next level. It may be a marketing associate, it may be a programmer, it may be one of the executives. But it's the person who's really taken the company to a new level in a very clever, clever and unusual way. Prezi, how many have this app? How many have downloaded this app or use it? Right? And, but it's beyond the app, it's just, oh, I gave a Prezi today. I have a Prezi this afternoon. It's just a the fact that you're giving a presentation to investors typically later. And then this is my favorite, another one of my favorites. Right? And in fact, I've started getting cards from people that says, you know, Chief Ninja, Marketing Ninja, Development Ninja. Right? So people have started to use the term ninja to describe someone who's really excellent at whatever skill set that they have. Well, he's, he's our marketing ninja. He's, she's our, our development ninja. All right, so that's just a quick intro into the uh, life of startups. Had you guys heard these things before? Some of them? Yes? Hopefully? Okay. So we'll go back to this presentation. And I think this is, this is going to be it. All right. So this presentation, um, back to Cardigan. Yeah, this, this is, the time was about 2009. Um, I was traveling across the country meeting alumni, right? And alumni of UVA Law School do not stay in Charlottesville. There's no jobs in Charlottesville. They're starting to be now, but there's no jobs in Charlottesville. So the alumni of this school were actually the most geographically dispersed law school in the country. So our alumni literally go everywhere. So when I was hired in 2003, it was with the promise that I'm going to travel to Kansas City and to Seattle and to San Antonio and to markets that the dean doesn't go to because there's just not enough people. The dean wants to be in the areas where there's like thousands of people, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, L.A., but can't really afford to be in an area where there's 34 people. But those 34 people could be very valuable, so somebody needs to go there. So that's what I was, I was brought on to do. And so as I would make my itineraries and these plans, I'd email alums. Hey, I'm going to be in Kansas City tomorrow. I'm going to be in Denver on Thursday. And I'm going to be in Seattle on next Tuesday. Can I meet with you? I'd like to introduce myself to you, tell you about what the school is doing, what's going on. They'd be like, sure. When you get in town, I've got an awesome place I'm going to take you. The best barbecue place in Kansas City. Right? The best pizza in Denver. The best coffee shop in Seattle. Right? And we would never go, never go to like Subway or Chili's or even Starbucks, quite frankly. It was places like Sophie's Cosmic Cafe and Bojo's and Arthur Bryant's. Right? And so we'd go to these places, and invariably, not all of them, but many of them would have punch cards. How many of you know what punch cards are? Have you seen punch cards before? 
Everybody seen punch cards? Everybody uses punch cards? I think I have some with me here because I'm still a fan of punch cards, right? Come on. Punch cards. Right. And so businesses give you these punch cards. You exchange dollars for a punch. The punch in the case of a coffee shop may be worth between three to five dollars. The punch in the case of sticks kebab shop is worth at least ten dollars, depending on the value of what you're receiving. On a punch card? Oh my god, I didn't know that. This one's full, it's ready to go, so I'll go do that for lunch. Um, and so you accumulate these punch cards, and being a thrifty guy, right, and I hope all of you are sort of conscious with your money and thrifty with how you spend, and you take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves to you. Right? So an opportunity that presents itself to me is like, wow, I'm going to probably come to this coffee shop 10 times. Why not get the 11th time free? doesn't make any sense to, to not go with it. Right? So in the case of when I was traveling, I'm like, okay, I come to Denver twice a year. I know this is buy 10, get the 11th one free. So yeah, it may take me five years, but by God, in year six, I'm getting that cappuccino. It is going to happen. And so what I would start to do is the next time I would come, want to go to Denver, I would say, hey, can we meet at so-and-so, to the different alum? They're like, oh, that's one of the best places in town. How did you know about it? I'm trying to complete my punch card. <laughs> I mean, I didn't tell them that, but I, oh, I heard. It was a great place. Um, so as I would travel across the country, I would oftentimes forget my cards here in Charlottesville, at the office, wherever it may be. And so I would go to the cashier, and I'd be like, Can I get one of those cards again? I forgot that card again. What the heck happened to that stupid card again? Those phrases became the name of the company. And that's why cardigan, the name, came to be. Right? I tried to get card again, A-G-A-I-N, but that name was taken by a, a blackjack company. So I came up with my own name. Right? And I knew I couldn't be card again because that's the sweater. But it was still catchy enough. Right, card again, that, right, and it's hard to come up with names for companies nowadays. Right? Think about it. Try to come up with a name for a company and go do a, a URL search, uh, a domain name search. It's, it's very difficult. Name existed, no one used it. I'm like, all right, perfect. I'm going to take. Uh, this is what ultimately became the name of the company. So I had all these cards, and I would put them in envelopes, and I would try to remember the envelope and go from different places. And, and then the iPhone came out in 2008, and I'm an early adopter of technology, and I'm like, this is cool. And they had this thing called apps, and most of the apps cost 99 cents. And so I was looking at this iPhone, and I was looking at these cards, and I thought to myself, is there any way that I could take these cards and put them here? Because right, I need to solve my own problem. And this is another thing that a lot of entrepreneurs uh, have to say when they're solving their own problem because they're going to be using the product. They're going to be the greatest critic of the product because they're the users. And so I'm like, I, so I, I want to be able to do this. So I emailed uh, about 30 of my friends. And I said, which one of you would be willing to pay 99 cents for a thing that I'm going to create called an app for your smartphone that's going to manage your punch cards? And out of those 30 people, I would say 20%, six said, I don't know, 
we're, we'll download it because of you. You're our boy. We'll, we'll, we'll down, but we don't really know if we're going to use this or not. So I'm, I'm like looking at this, and I'm like, wow, how could like all these people have said no? And all these people said the only reason they're going to do it is for me. Don't other people have this problem? Like, don't they want to save money? Don't they not want to worry about having their cards? Like, what about the conveniences of like not having a wallet that's this thick? Right. Right. And so this was the beginning of, of, of what I call the micro-research phase of Cardigan, right? Because I'm trying to establish at this phase that there's a need and a demand for this product. Right? This is where a lot of companies fail. They say, I want to come, I'm gonna, I have a great idea. I'm gonna create something. And they don't even ask if the market wants it. Is there a need for this? Is there a demand? Are people willing to pay for it? Because right? it's gotta make money somehow, other than Twitter or Facebook early on. I mean, name me a company that was, has been successful without being able to make money. Can you name me any? Which one? Tesla? I don't know. I mean, they, um, I mean, the, the, they do a pretty good job of selling their, um, their products now. But you're right. I mean, early on, it didn't, there, was, there was a lot of uh, 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 reasons to believe it wasn't going to be successful. But you, you get my point, right? Very rarely will a company be accepted into the marketplace if it doesn't, if there's not a, a revenue model attached to it, if it's not going to make money. So uh, is there a need? Is there a demand? And so I'm doing this micro research, right? It doesn't work with consumers. And I'm like, all right, well, you know what? Maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Because if the consumers aren't going to pay for it, who might? Clearly the businesses. I mean, the businesses pay to get these products printed. They get them printed in color. Right? They pay. They give them to the customers. They have to honor them when they come back. So why don't I interview the businesses and see if they'll pay for these products? So I took a week off from work, and I said I was going to interview a handful of businesses that I redeem cards at in town. And so literally every day, I would go to a place, and I would ask, can I speak to the owner? And eventually, it may take a while, but the owners oftentimes were there, because these were small places, either single or, or two location places. The owner would come out. And I would ask the owner one question. One question. And that question was, do you know who I am? And the owners oftentimes would be like this. But most often, they would be like, I'm sorry, sir. I have never seen you before in my life. I'm like, that's odd. Because I've been living in Charlottesville since 2003. I've been coming to your store on a regular basis, monthly, weekly. I've redeemed about 20 of your punch cards over the six years that I've been here. I must have spent $2,000, maybe more. I said, I don't know if that makes me silver club. Gold club, platinum club, or any club. I said, but you know what? Neither do you. I said, I'm creating this product that's going to give you insight into who your customers are. It's going to tell you who are these people that pick these cards up. How much do they spend? What do they buy? I'm going to allow you to communicate with them. You're going to be able to interact with them. 
This is going to be the best small business CRM that you've ever seen. Because right now, Marriott does this. American Airlines does this. Hertz does this. Why don't you, Sticks? Why don't you, Zazus? Why don't you, Dunkin' Donuts? Why? Why can't you tell me who your 5,000 best customers are, or who your 500 best customers, or who your 50 best customers are, but the other places can? Because they've spent years on a loyalty program. And at the time, from a macro level, everybody was doing a loyalty program. So people were interested in loyalty. People were interested in this information because everybody knew that 20% of a customer base was going to come up with 80% of the revenue. That was, that was the case. And that's the case for most businesses. 20% of the customers create 80% of the revenue. So your job as a business owner is always to covet, identify, and protect that 20%. Don't lose that 20%. That's why you give them this special status, platinum, and admirals preferred, and chairman elite, and all these things. And you give them all these extra bonuses because you want to keep them coming back. They're your top 20%. That's where your money is made. The other people that come and go and try different airlines, they're nice to have whenever they come. And that's great. You'd love to move them up into that 20%. But you've got to focus on that 20%. That's where you've got to spend all your time. Business owners know that. And so pretty much all across the line, the investors were like, the investors, the <laughs> business owners were like, that's a good idea. And over the course of those conversations, I got more details from them than I ever dreamed of about problems with these punch cards. And it was those conversations that actually created the business plan for Cardi. Because not only was there cost, right? They told me about cost. So people paid staples to make these anywhere from one penny to five cents per card. But the worst was Dunkin' Donuts. Because Dunkin' Donuts' guy had to order them from corporate and he had to pay 15 cents per card. And it was buy six, get the seventh one free, right, as marketing. And he said it drives him crazy when a customer would walk in with six cards all punched once, saying, I'd like my free cup of coffee. 90 cents worth of marketing, an 11 cent cup of coffee. He's like, that doesn't work. He's like, I cannot wait to get rid of that. I don't want to do that. It's a waste of money. Right? The fraud that's associated with these cards. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever befriended a barista or the rap maker who punches, but if you have, oftentimes they'll give you two punches. Or if you're their friend, they'll give you four punches. Right? Think of how much they're stealing from the company by giving you that extra punch. Right? But the, the managers can't fire them. The owners aren't going to fire them. It's not going to happen. You're not going to fire somebody because they give somebody an extra punch. Right? But the biggest was data. Data. No information. People carry these cards in their wallets and their purses for years. Data. No information. So now you have data. You have information. You have Knowledge, which was, uh, which was uh, a, a big thing. So maybe it's a good idea for us to stop here. And then we'll begin with the videos tomorrow. And then we'll give you the, uh, the, the present, we'll give you the, the assignment.